Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. All right, let's open up to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians, Paul's letter to the churches of the region of Galatia. Chapter 2, verse 21 today. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to read 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would guide us as we look into your word. We pray that you would, your spirit would help us to understand what is written here and the glorious truths of our redemption in Christ. The glorious truth that we have an alien righteousness and that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Lord, to pray that we would rest in that, we would meditate on these glories all through the day. And may you be honored and glorified in all that we say, do, and think. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to focus on that second half of verse 21. We handled 20 last time and talked through that. I guess there's one comment I want to make in, in, chap, in verse 20, and that is, look at how personal the Apostle Paul is thinking about the redemption of Jesus Christ. He says, um, I now live in the flesh. Um, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Right, personally apprehending the glorious truth of Christ's redemption. That should be, uh, I mean, I think, I think it's critical that we move from a theoretical Christ died for the sins of the world to a Christ died for me, personally. Uh, that Christianity is not general concepts, but they're very personal, relational concepts that apply to you and your soul and your own relationship uh, to God. And so just one, that was, that's the free comment. You have to pay me for the rest of the lesson. Verse 20, 21, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That's what we're going to think about today. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So let's begin here. Basic catechism. We are all sinners. Scripture says that we have all sinned and fallen 
and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so you are sinners to the point of being dead to God outside of Christ. You are dead, spiritually you're dead. You may be walking and living and physically alive, but you are spiritually dead because of the sin you inherit from Adam, that corruption you inherit from Adam, but also by the sins you commit yourself. Dead men don't do work, right? Dead men don't do much. In fact, dead men don't do anything. They are incapable of spiritual good. If you're dead in your sins, you can't do anything that pleases God ever. Because everything you do does not arise from faith. And without faith, we can't please the Lord. Right? We are incapable of spiritual good, works that come from faith. Dead men don't do that. So if we are saved by works, all are damned because we can't do what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, what is righteousness? One of the commentaries I'm reading said, saving righteousness is a status, not a condition. And what does that mean? It's a status, not a condition. Are you righteous? Yes and no. Right? So what does he mean by status, not a condition? Speak loud. Uh, maybe. I, I hear what you're saying. Okay, I, I mean, true. Okay. Okay, right. We're getting there. We're getting there. Saving righteousness is a status, not a condition. Yes. Okay. It, yeah, no, doesn't answer my question. It, I mean, it, it talks about righteousness, but it doesn't answer my question. This is really important. This is key for your understanding of justification. This is really key. Okay, Christ confers a righteousness to us. It's not something, and, and you guys were saying, all of you were saying this. It's not, it, it's, it, he, it's a declaration of God. It's not that something you work up yourself, right? So it's a status conferred. He says righteous, and you're righteous, right? You're forgiven of your sins. You're righteous in Christ as a status, not as a condition. Your condition is still 
simultaneously sinner and justified, right? You still sin. You still have unrighteousness in you. You, you are still um, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. But that status that God declares not guilty, right, is, is what we're talking about. And so saving righteousness is a status, not a condition. Who are the righteous then? Who are the righteous? How does God confer that status? Believers, the chosen, Okay, so what, what are we talking about there? Faith. Generic faith. Everybody says faith. Everybody's saying belief. Come on, don't be generic. Be like Sunday, the Sunday school answers. That's what I'm looking for. Little kid. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. You must believe that. He is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him, right? You must believe that he uh, rose from the dead, that he lived, he rose from the dead, right? And confess that with your mouth. And so, those who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God looks on them and confers a status upon them of not guilty, righteous, righteous in Christ by faith. By faith alone. That's it, okay? Are there alternative ways to become righteous? Are there alternative ways to become savingly righteous? Keeping the law, Mike says. Wrong! I will scream that to the heavens. Wrong. Never the intent of the law. Never. Those who think they can earn righteousness by keeping the Ten Commandments have missed the boat. Okay? That is not justification. Jesus kept the Ten Commandments and was righteous so that he would be an unblemished sacrifice for those who would be saved by faith in him, okay? Now, are there alternative ways to become righteous? Now, this is where this verse comes in. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Now, think through this. This is We're just going to spin on this for a, for a bit. You, are not, you do not become righteous. You do not receive that status. You do not... Um, you do not uh, build up a merit by keeping the law. It's not by wishful thinking. And that is often today how people uh, think they are made righteous. They just have wishful thinking that one day they'll be welcomed into heaven. There are not many hurdles other than uh, maybe looking forward to the afterlife. Um, some people, it's not by Buddha. It's not by being kind to other people. It's not by your level of education or the quality of your education. It's not by abstaining from certain foods. It's not by building muscle mass. 
It's not by burning incense to a piece of fruit that you put by the door in the entrance to your Chinese restaurant or Vietnamese restaurant or whatever it is. Seems like every one of those I go into, there's a little bit of incense burning next to a piece of fruit. Look around the next time you're in, a, in an Asian market or something. It's not by communicating with ancestors. It's not animism, right? It's not by, um, it's not through the means of psychedelics that help you cross over into the other side before you die. It's not by any of those means. If there are other ways, then as our passage says, Christ died needlessly. If there are alternative ways of righteousness, the, the sacrifice of Christ was foolishness. It was ridiculous overkill. On, on, on the... Um, at the, at the determination of God. If there are alternative routes, then the cross of Christ is not necessary. If salvation comes by any other method, the cross is meaningless and Christ died for nothing. So the holiness of God demands or requires, right, that sin be punished. We know that. Um, God is not one who merely brushes sin under the rug, so to speak. He does not wink at sin. He is filled with wrath, and the object of his eternal wrath will always be sin. Okay? And he does not just sweep sin away. There was, there, um, there is a cost associated with sin, and that cost was death. And there must be punishment. Exodus 34, 7 says, He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Sinners will be punished. Pure and simple. And if, if righteousness comes by faith in Jesus Christ, then there must be some sort of proper sacrifice, right? All the sacrifices of the Old Testament, where the, the Israelite laid their heads, their hands on the head of the, the goat and it was slain, is, is a vicarious substitutionary atonement, right? And Christ follows that pattern except the, the blood of bulls and goats could never forgive sins. And so it required a proper, sufficient sacrifice, and that sacrifice was the God-man, the perfectly holy God-man, unblemished lamb, Jesus Christ. And he was sacrificed so that your sins would be punished and God would be declared just. And so he is just and the justifier. And that is your salvation. And that is why it is faith in Jesus Christ that saves. So there must be a proper sacrifice. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to put away sin. Now think of the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22. Luke 22:42. 42. We read of 
Jesus agonizing in the garden. 2239, and he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is asking the Father if there are if there are alternative ways. That's what he's doing there. And that's why it boggles our mind, knowing what we know from Scripture, right? That he, he only could suffice as the sacrifice to make us righteous. And there he is, just before he's about to become that sacrifice, asking God if there are any alternative ways. Take this cup from me. Let's figure something else out. Now, that's cosmically, like, dissonant for so many reasons, right? We, we can't plumb the depths of that. Jesus prayed for an alternative way, and there was none. In other words, the Father takes very seriously the prayers of his Son. <laughs> I mean, that's like understatement. They are one. Right? And so, you think, of, you think of large language models. That's, how, that's what we're supposed to call um, AI now, large language models. And they, they can take in a ton of information and then just in, in an instant analyze it. Right? You tell them to write a paper on... Machen's Christianity liberalism and they just it spits it out in two seconds and you've got this pretty cogent you know paper and so that so AI can look through all this information but think of think of Jesus asking God the father if there's another way and they they look through the the their own infinite minds and there is no other answer there's no output it's like no this is the only way they found no other way Jesus had to drink the cup of God's wrath he had to take the punishment he was the only proper sacrifice one way that is it this is it this is the only way And Jesus willingly and lovingly accepted the answer of his Father, which is there's no other way. Not my will, but thine will be done, he said. He would die for our sins. He would be crushed for our iniquities, right? He would be forsaken by the Father. He would become the curse. He would bear the wrath of God, which you deserved, and he bore that wrath in your place. So that sin could actually be dealt with and God could actually justify you and declare you not guilty through the action of the God-man Jesus Christ. And that righteousness is now an alien righteousness. It's Christ that is shared with us as a gift and so the just shall live by faith. 
And then Romans 4 comes in. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages is not credited as a favor, but what is due. Right? If you work, you're supposed to be paid for your work. You get a wage. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. It's conferred righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So if righteousness comes by the law as some kind of alternative to the cross and the work of Christ, you better get to work. And you better work much harder than you you have been working. Really, really uh, much harder because you need to stop sinning entirely. But even then, it's too late. Sorry. You were born in corruption, and you will continue to sin. And so the bestowal of righteousness through works was never the way. That was never the way of righteousness, right? There was not going to be the um, conveyance of righteousness through the works of the law. It was never the purpose of the law. Galatians 2.16, just before our passage, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for, here's the purpose of the law, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what the law does. The law increases sin. The law, the law points out your sin. Paul said he wouldn't have known coveting until the law said he coveted, and then he coveted everywhere. He couldn't stop seeing how he was always coveting. Here's what, um, again, the commentary I'm leaning on, Terry Johnson says, We were lost. We were helpless and hopeless. Our good was never good enough. It never can be. If it could, then Christ died needlessly. If it could, then mankind did not need a savior. It may have needed a teacher, it may have needed an example, it may have needed a helper, but it did not need a savior. Remember this when you are tempted to say of the fine, moral, sincere agnostic that surely he will be in heaven. Remember, if that is possible, then Christ, then Christianity is ruined. You, however, innocently have destroyed the need for the centerpiece of the Christian religion, the cross, and with the cross, the one who died upon it. Now, of all people, one of our favorite Christian authors was bad on this point. Lewis, C.S., you've heard of him. He's terrible on this point. Which, if you're terrible on this point, you're a blasphemer. There's no other way to put it. 
You're a blasphemer if you miss this core central point of the gospel, that righteousness is alien, that it is conferred to us by God, that the sincerity of our works doesn't matter because they're not sincere. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this, but the truth is, God has not told us what his arrangement about the other people are, non-believers. We do not know, wait, we do know that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. Are you serious? In a letter, now some of you have read The Last Battle, right? And there's a guy named Emeth. And that guy named Emeth is a worshiper of Tash and a Calamine, or however you say that. He's a worshiper of Tash, and he makes it in. He gets to post-Narnia bliss. And someone asked him about this in a letter, and he responded with these words. The world does not consist of 100% Christians and 100% non-Christians. It's starting bad, okay? There are people, a great many of them, who are slowly ceasing to be Christians, but who still call themselves by that name. Some of them are clergymen. There are other people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. There are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted by him that they are his, in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. There are people in other religions, listen, who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. That's blasphemy. There is no other way to put that. That is blasphemy. Billy Graham in 1997 said this, I think that everybody that loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're members of the body of Christ. Whether they're conscious of it or not, they're members of the body of Christ. And that's what God is doing today. He's calling people out of the world for his name. Whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world, they are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not even know the name of Jesus. But they know in their heart that they need something that they don't have, and they turn to the only light that they have. And I think that they are saved, and that they're going to be with us in heaven. Before that, in 1978, Billy Graham said, I used to believe that pagans in far countries were lost if they did not have the gospel of Christ preached to them. I no longer believe that. 1978. And... Again, I bring up Billy Graham because he preached Christ. He preached justification in Christ. And yet, the the more he went on in his career, the more the concept of hell just became odious to him. 
And, and then by the end of his life, and whether or not you want to attribute it to mental decline or, or a, a, a sort of um, apostasy, you know, I, I, I won't make any judgments about that. But by the end, he's saying things that Lewis is saying. Like there are people who genuinely serve Allah who don't know anything about Christ, but they, they, they sort of get the Christian parts of Allah right, and so they're in. It's blasphemy. It makes a mockery of this statement in Galatians that if we are saved by works of the law, then Christ died needlessly. It m- makes a mockery of that. It says, of course there's an alternative. Just keep worshiping your God and be ignorant of Christ, but make sure you're on the Christian side of your religion, and that's good enough, you're in. Westminster Larger Catechism comes crashing in. Can they who have never heard the gospel and so know not Jesus Christ nor believe in him be saved by their living according to the light of nature? They who, never, having never heard the gospel, know not Jesus Christ and believe not in him cannot be saved, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature or the laws of that religion which they profess, neither is there salvation in any other but in Christ alone, who is the Savior only of his body, the church. And that's the testimony of Scripture. Right? Isn't that the testimony of Scripture? What Scriptures come into your mind? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll end with the testimony of Scripture. Okay. Jesus himself said, no one comes to the Father but through me. No one. And in the Greek, it's no one. It's not hard. It's not one of those tricky words. No one comes to the Father but through me. Peter, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Paul, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The Apostle John, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Pretty clear? I mean... Pretty clear that the apostles and, and uh, are, are tracking with what Jesus said about, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But those like Lewis and those like Billy Graham, and I don't know if he recanted those words. I just, I didn't follow it through. He may have recanted those things. His son may have distanced himself from those words. I don't know. Um, 
Anybody who says anything like Lewis says is blaspheming God. Anybody who says anything like what Lewis says is saying that there is alternative ways to be declared righteous and be welcomed into the presence of a holy God. And then, and then it's like, once you circle back, it's like, okay, then Christ's sacrifice is really ridiculous. That, G, that the Father would send his only begotten Son to die for sinners when it wasn't absolutely necessary. I mean, I mean maybe, maybe as an example, which is what liberals do with the cross, they just say it's an example of suffering, it's a moral influence theory, right? It just sways us to lead more righteous lives. But we say, no, the cross is a substitutionary atonement. It is necessary for God to be just and to be the justifier. It is, un, um, it is the, the top-tier doctrine of Christianity. And if you mess with that, then you have, you have gone off the reservation. And, it's, and you're committing blasphemy. Blasphemy against the Father. Blasphemy against the Son. The Father who sent His Son. And blasphemy against Jesus who obeyed the Father to the point of death. Death on a cross. So there are no other ways. And if you're trusting in other ways, if you're just trusting in the... I mean, some people just trust in the passage of time. They just don't even think about things, and they're like, well, things will work out. They're just trusting in time, not putting their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, right? Lord and Savior, the one who you take orders from and the one who protects you from hell by his sacrificial atonement. And so there are, you know... Um, don't, don't get, don't get confused. Um, don't get confused. There, there, um, there's one category of person that is saved and will be welcomed into heaven. Genuine moral pagans, genuine moral Muslims, genuine immoral Hindus will not be welcomed into the presence of God until they repent and believe in the blood of Christ. That's the only way. That's it. And so, you've been shown the way. Right? You've been shown the way. You ought to be dancing and shouting from the rooftops about the glory of this, that you've seen it when so many others don't see it and suppress that truth and unrighteousness, right? You've seen it. You've seen the way. There's one way. This is the way, right? This is the way. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. There's a, I got a few minutes left. I guess I could go into this. There's a review on this. Um, there's this website that reviews like sci-fi stuff. And there's a, 
there's a review of the last battle by some, I think, young man. It's called Stumbling into Heaven, Emmeth, Aslan, and the Last Battle. And uh, I think I got enough to go through it. It's pretty short. But let me, let me read you some of that. I grew, up in, in a, I grew up in Christian church and Christian school. And although I was still in grade school when I read the Narnia books, there was one particular piece of theology I knew very well. It, it's easy to get to hell and hard to get to heaven. In fact, the year I read The Last Battle, I was going to a school that taught you could lose your salvation too, meaning that if you had died at the wrong moment, sometime between messing up and asking for forgiveness, you were still going to hell, even if you believed in Jesus and had all the right theology and so on. Terrible church. (laughs) For me, the worst thing about hell wasn't the fire and devils and torture forever. It was the thought of not seeing my family ever again. There was a Christian horror film making the rounds at the time called A Thief in the Night, and I made the mistake of watching that. There was a scene where all the good followers of God are raptured, and this little girl comes into her house and hears a teapot whistling and is sure that she's been left behind. That terrified me. Anytime the house got too quiet, I was sure it had finally happened. I was scared, scared of hell, scared of God, scared of losing my salvation for doing something wrong. I wrote an essay at my grade school and how you shouldn't, about how you shouldn't smoke because it's not worth risking hell, and I got second place. This is the world I inhabited. My parents, who thought if you received salvation you couldn't lose it, were concerned about the levels of fear I was putting off and tried to sit me down and explain um, not to listen to everything I heard at school. And that to doubt that God would save me was a kind of sin in itself. But it only confused me more, leaving me a strange theology where I believed that if you prayed to receive Jesus once, that was good. But if you prayed it again, that was a sin because you were doubting God and therefore God would take away your salvation. So we're talking about a a fundamentalist church here. Okay, I mean, it's very obvious. As I started reading The Last Battle, even as a kid, I recognized that it was talking about heaven. The Pavenzies, well, most of them, were dead. All the other Narnian characters I cared about were dead. And the other side, and on the other side of that stable door was a Narnia somehow better and more real than the Narnia they had left. That was obviously heaven, just like I'd been taught at school and church. It's the same, but better. There's still food, but now it's all banquets and cups flowing over. We still have roads, but they're made of gold. I knew how it would work. Some would make it in and some would not. I was definitely disturbed by the mention of Susan in the book as, quote, no longer a friend of Narnia. But that fit very well with my theology at the time. And don't worry, we're getting to Susan very soon. I was surprised by the people who managed to get into the new Narnia. Puzzle. The Antichrist himself was somehow in. Some dwarves who didn't even know they were in the new Narnia, they got in. Shift was rightfully devoured by Tash, as I knew the Calamines, servants of the evil false god, would be. Except then came Emmeth. I loved him. As I think Lewis intended, the noble Calamine who stood up against the evil forces and their false Aslan, I felt a sort of mounting sorrow for him as I saw his end coming. I knew he would be sent to hell no matter what I wanted, but he wasn't. I was confused as Emmeth when the Pavenzies came across him and come across him in the afterlife. 
and astonished as he began his tale. He had met the great lion Aslan, big as an elephant and fast as an ostrich. He had been called my son by the god of another people, another religion, and Aslan had told him that every good thing he had ever done in the name of Tash had actually been done for Aslan, and any evil thing anyone had ever done in the name of Aslan had actually been done for Tash. So Emeth, who had never met Aslan, had never followed Aslan, had never done any service for Narnia, was in. He was a follower of Aslan without ever knowing it. I was stunned. I remember reading it over again, then again. I had never heard anything like this. I was supposed, it was supposed to be hard to get into heaven, and Emeth had just stumbled in. Years later, thinking back on the book, this was the only passage I remembered with any clarity. Not the unicorn or the grand battle at the end, not the donkey and the lion skin. Just Emeth, surprised and pleased to find himself in heaven. Just because he had tried as much as he was able to do the right thing in life and to find what was true. In fact, Emeth's name is a Hebrew word for truth. This is the scene that is often brought up when people are wondering if Lewis was a Christian universalist, subscribing to the belief that God will eventually save everyone. Lewis liked the idea. He wasn't a huge, huge fan of the idea of hell, but ultimately couldn't bring himself to believe it. Lewis talks about this in The Problem of Pain. He said, some will not be redeemed. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power but it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. Like it or not then, there was only one way to go to heaven, through Jesus. But Lewis points out in mere Christianity, and that's the quote I shared with you earlier, about we do not know those that, those, that only those who know him can be saved through him. I'm not the only one to be taken aback by Lewis's inclusivity. He got letters asking about it. People wanted to know more about what he meant, that an unbeliever could enter heaven, and he talked about it, and then we get more quotes from him. And then you think at the end of the article that he's going to be disappointed, but he, what he says is he found it incredibly freeing that he could now see that everybody was going to heaven. So there are a number of lessons from that. Don't take your theology from fiction. Okay? The other thing is don't, don't think that Aslan is God. Some people who love those books get confused about that. Um... Don't prefer a work of fiction by a mere man over the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the inspired and inerrant Word of God. The Word of God is very clear on this point. We just went through the Scriptures. Okay? And Lewis was blaspheming in his imagination and in his theological views. Right? And, and it, it's terribly misleading. And it has led this young man to, um, he says, all his fear of hell just, just washed away when he contemplated this scene. And 
He's taken now the words of C.S. Lewis in The Last Battle as his gospel. Would that he had gone to Scripture to read Scripture and say, okay, let's analyze this by something higher than C.S. Lewis and something higher than, than uh, a work of allegory. And that's the, the inerrant, infallible word of God. So I'm thankful for the last battle and I'm thankful for Emmeth. It's a theological lesson that I got as a child that I am still thinking about, still mulling over. And it fills me with both relief and joy to think that when we make, when we each make our way through that stable at the world's end, that even if the name of Aslan was hateful to us, if we have been doing our best to find truth, to do the right thing, to care for the people around us, that we can expect to be greeted by a lion as big as an elephant fast as an ostrich, with eyes bright as liquid gold in a furnace, beautiful and terrible. And whether we fall down or bury our faces in his mane, we can expect to hear that deep and glorious voice say, Child, you are welcome. But to hear the depart from me, I never knew you, will be so devastating because he's deluded, right? it's so sad. So always give C.S. Lewis books with a warning. Don't let them mislead. And, and, and instead, really, share the gospel from the word of God. It's truth, right? It is truth. Emmeth, in that whole scenario, is not truth, even though his name means it, right? It's untruth. And that's what the devil does, right? The devil, the devil makes untruth look like the truth. That's what counterfeits are. They resemble the truth, but they aren't the truth. Okay, counterfeits. That's a counterfeit gospel. You want the, the real gospel, and that's that if righteousness comes through the works of the law, then Christ died needlessly. Well, he didn't die needlessly, okay? Died for souls sufficiently. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we would never depart from it, that we would never be twisted and swayed away from the hard truths of your word. But Father, this is not a hard truth. It's glorious that by faith we're saved in Christ, and that is all that is necessary. That is enough. So we thank you for the ease of the gospel. And Father, we thank you for opening our eyes to it and giving us faith as a gift. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.